Good evening. Welcome. My name is Jonathan Lip. I'm the director here of the Big Apple Film Festival. Uh, thank you all for being here for uh, our first night of conferences. Uh, so tonight's conference, we're going to be speaking about distribution. So I'd like to uh, introduce our speakers. We have Marcia Mayer, Diane Krauss, Barry Heyman, and David Patterson. So I'm going to allow each of them to uh, introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about themselves. Uh, so why don't we start with uh, Marcia? Hi, I'm Marcia. Thanks for coming out on this rainy, rainy night. Um, I am. Oh, can you? Can everybody hear me? Okay. Uh, I'm a producer. One of the films I produced is screening tonight. It's called Inez and Doug and Kira. Uh, and before I was a producer, I was a international sales agent for a company called Goldcrest, and I managed um, acquisitions and sales to about half the world, specializing in Latin America and um, Eastern Europe. So I feel like I've come at this question from both sides, um, and yeah, look, happy to be here. So we before or after the, the big movie? Were you involved in the big movie? The, um, no. You weren't? Okay. Because, you know, the, I think Goldcrest made the, the most amount of money on the, um, the wedding movie, the Greek, the, the Greek wedding movie. Um, big fat Greek wedding? Yeah. I mean, she, she actually did it. It was based on a one-woman show, and before it became a movie, I used to work a lot with comedians, and she called me with a specific question, and I remember telling her it was she, the manager who later sued her. I knew, and um, anyway, and all I said is, don't, no matter what, make sure you're in the movie. And that was my big advice to her. So, anyway, um, I'm Diane Krauss. Uh, when I'm not schmoozing and giving advice, I'm an, an attorney, and I've been an attorney for probably longer than a lot of you guys. Well, some of you guys, anyway. And um, I've the, one of the former chairs of the Entertainment and Sports Law Committee, which makes me think I know more than I do. So I hope you guys correct me if I don't. And um, my specialties are independent film and theater and IP. And I've been running a transactional law practice for a long time in New York. Hello, I'm Barry Heyman, also an entertainment lawyer. Uh, I started my career in uh, the record industry in the copyright licensing department. And upon graduating law school, worked for Eagle Rock Entertainment. And they produced a lot and still do concerts and uh, also have a couple record labels, so it's kind of expanded from there, learning about location releases and all different types of uh, expanded areas of um, you know, licensing that's involved in the production. From there, I worked at MTV in uh, new media licensing and music licensing, and uh, have my law practice now for about 15 years, and represent uh, musicians, producers, independent filmmakers, a lot of independent productions, uh, music video productions as well, things like that. Hi, my name, Hi, my name is Steve Patterson. Um, I am a writer-producer, um, so I'm probably the biggest guy here with the biggest head of BS and hope. Um, I think of all the people here, a lot of these people are a lot more leveled, level-headed than me. But um, I've been fortunate enough, I got into the business, started out as an actor for the steady work. I uh, became a playwright for the big money. <laughs> Thank you. And then I became a screenwriter for the respect and honor you get from the <laughs> studio system and distributors. So, yeah, I crashed and burned on all three, but I did put my wife through law school. And so she owes, owes me big time. And, um, but I have been fortunate enough to have some uh, successful films, both in the independent film world as well as some studio projects as well. So let's jump into it, right? 
All right, so let me start out with um, asking Marcia. Uh, an independent filmmaker, they complete their film, they're looking for distribution. Uh, would, you, would you recommend going to a sales rep? Uh, is that a critical part of the, the process? Uh, yes, but I would actually recommend going to a sales rep when you have a script before you even start filming a film. Because these days they can tell you basically from the script and the package, and some of them help you package your film also, um, they can tell you this is about how much money you're gonna possibly make in the end, and then you can adjust your budget accordingly and make sure that nobody is completely at a loss in an ideal world. Uh, Okay, let's try this. Um, so Diane, uh, in terms of rights and clearances, uh, once a filmmaker completes their film and they're looking for a distributor, uh, how important is it to get those rights and clearances prior to hitting the festival circuit, um, music rights, archival footage, or can that wait until you actually enter into a deal? Well, usually um, it depends. I mean, I don't know how many people hire a production lawyer based on their budget, but it's usually advisable it's, you know, if you can to at least understand what a production lawyer does and get the releases and clearances up until you know you've got the fest up until festival rights. That's what people do. Or you can pre-negotiate. You can negotiate up to festival rights and then pre-negotiate what happens if you get further distribution. If you can with a with a certain distributor with music rights, that's very difficult. Um, in, in particular, like I think that's your experience also. Yeah. But you, you know, you say to them, "Look, if I make it into a festival, how much would you charge me to clear the rights up till then?" Unless it's music that you've actually made for the film, right? Or right. Um, so, yeah. I could yeah. talk about the music yeah, aspect the music of it, because um, sometimes I am on the the other side of it, and my clients are the licensors, the owners of the material that you know is seeking to be used in the film. And so, uh, as Diane was mentioning, you know, festival rights uh, might be granted by the, uh, the songwriters and the recording artists. And there's, you gotta remember, don't forget, if you, don't, if you haven't thought about it, that there's actually two copyrights in music. There's the sound recording and, and the underlying composition. So it's the songwriters and then the recorded version of it. So you have to be sure to clear what they call both sides. And so when you get festival rights, you know, you have to be sure to go to the sound recording owner, typically a record company, and the music publisher. Were you going to add something? Yeah, unless you want to re-record the song, in which case you just have to go to the underlying owner of the song and not the actual owner of the master. Right. That's expensive. Yeah, I had a film at Sundance back in 05, and we had four and a half seconds of a song. We didn't even get clearance. You know, I just said, oh, it's not going to be a big deal. And it was a song called uh, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. It was only, you know, four and a half seconds. And uh, so when we decided to get clearance, we contacted Oscar and Hammerstein Estate, and they said it's going to be uh, $50,000, $25,000 for the lyrics, and 25000 for the music. We didn't use it, uh, by the way, but it was quite a wake-up. Uh, I was thinking, it's six seconds, what's the big deal? It's a really old song, who's going to care? And, uh, oh yeah, people well, care. Well, sometimes, if you can, up front, you try to get festival rights either very inexpensively 
or at a low price, and once maybe the production might be sold, then you can you know do what they call like a step deal, where if you were to you know exercise your option to use it more commercially, then you would be responsible for paying the big bucks. Um, you know, to, the, to your point about using that four-second song, if you re-record that four seconds, then maybe you don't have to go to the sound recording owner. You just go to the to the publisher of the composition, and you pay uh, independent musicians to record the track, and the, and you can get it as a work for hire. So you'd pay someone five hundred bucks versus fifty thousand, for example. I mean, there's some very famous stories. There's one about the movie Dragnet, which came out a long time ago with Tom Hanks, but. They never, I know from the producer, they never really cleared the song with the television show, the dun, da dun, dun. So they had to spend a fortune by the time the movie was made to clear it from the owners of the song. So that was the joke. And every time it was Dan, I think it was Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks kept going dun, da dun, dun, because they knew how much it cost them to clear the song once the movie was made. So there are some, you know, famous, they're called, we call them like lawyers' pipe dreams, but they're, there are real stories of people not clearing the underlying rights properly, but when it's too late and they have to clear the rights and there's hold up times. I've also done a couple of documentaries. In a couple of years, I was brought on for a documentary called Don't Stop Believing, Everyman's, Ge Everyman's Journey. And it was about the homeless drug addict from the Philippines who became the lead singer for Journey. Now, it was a very successful documentary, won tons of awards, but when they brought me aboard, I was asking them about music rights. And they're like, oh, the band gave us... Uh, full clearance for the festival. Anything at festival is free. And I was like, well, what about once we sell it? Because I know we're going to sell it. And they're like, well, they said they're going to be cool. It'll be cool about this. And, and this is one of those things where you come in later on as a producer and you go, okay, let's see how cool they are. And they were very nice, the guys, very cool. Uh, once we got our first nibble um, for sales, the budget of our documentary uh, quadrupled. And let's just say we were already in the hundreds of thousands for this documentary. And so then it went through the roof because, of course, they wanted, <laughs> they wanted to make sure that they got their penny. And you can end up getting really bit on the butt yeah. uh, with rights like this. Yeah, music is very expensive. And, and also there's certain shows on Broadway. Um, and I have one of my, my close, my co-chair co actually of the Theater and Performing Arts will tell you stories of certain um, songs and songwriters of pop songs that will not take even the reduced percentages will always take off the top if there's certain music writers that are needed for certain jukebox musicals and stuff. I mean, they, they really, there's certain music publishers, uh, you know, owners of the songs that will really take the last dime happily out of your pocket, you know, without any problem whatsoever. So be aware of that. I mean, if you can get festival rights, and as, you, as, as Barry said, a step deal where you can pre-negotiate what those numbers are gonna be later on, that's important. So that's one really important thing. I mean, usually you usually get releases and contracts from the from the um, artists, and the people in your show. Underlying rights, as we you know, if you talked about, you probably if you're doing a documentary, you try to get clearances and releases. Um, there's there's a very well known world of, of lawyers that know that if you can't get the releases for whatever reason, someone won't sign or not. There's a couple of lawyers. Mostly, there's one in L. A where if you spend a lot of money, you can get something called a fair use letter, where the lawyer comes up with theories about why you don't need the release because it's under the exception to the copyright infringement rules and they explain why it's fair use under the copyright laws and you don't have to get the permission. 
but believe me, and he usually he's very he's very clever, and he he's you know won cases on both sides, and there's one guy that does that type of work. Um, I worked for a production company once, and I really know I, one of my the, my the woman I work with, who's the head of business affairs. Every time you needed to, you couldn't get a release. She knew how much it was going to cost her to get that fair use letter. Um, because you have to, you usually have to get something called ENO, which is errors and emissions insurance, in order to be able to distribute. And if you tell them you don't have this letter, you know, or you don't have the guarantee, um, you're not going to be able to distribute your film and have it. So it's it's a real it's a real fun fun time too. <coughs> Marcia, if um, an independent filmmaker is looking for a sales rep and they approach you or any sales rep, uh, what do you look for before you decide if you're going to take on a, a film, if you're going to represent the film? Um, so, sorry. I used to work for a company that did international sales, um, which is different. There's most companies are either North America and domestic rights or international, and kind of what they look for is very different. Um, for international sales, it's really about, um, you know, is this broad enough that we're going to have interest from all over the world? Uh, so it is actually quite hard to secure a sales agent at script stage for an independent film for international but the reason that I said go talk to the sales agents before you make your film is because you need to start making those connections you need them to read your script they give great notes they know how to say you know if you cast this Belgian actor then you're going to be able to sell the movie in Benelux for $125,000 and you know they'll give you really great advice and then once the movie is made you have people that you go back to and you say this is what we were talking about I followed some of your advice <laughs> can you take another look and hopefully your film gets picked up um, but you know first and foremost obviously is a story that people can connect with universally I think is the number one thing and that's exciting and interesting what about like na name talent attached is that ideal yeah definitely um and definitely, if, if you're trying, you know, if you have a movie that you are going to want pre-sales as part of the financing structure, then name talent becomes a must. Right. right. Um, Diane and Barry, do you ever represent uh, screenwriters or filmmakers um, uh, if they, let's say, they don't have an agent, but they'd like to, they'd like to... Um, you know, try to sell, let's say, a completed script. Would do you do you work in that area as well? I mean, there's there's two different things. There's there's a there's a submission of scripts to producers, and a lot of times you need a lawyer or an agent to submit a script. So a long time ago, um, there were other attorneys that said, look, if you want to be able to submit a script as an attorney, then you have this courtesy submission policy. I don't know if you do, if you do that. You, you you charge a very minimal amount of money and write a cover letter submitting a script as a courtesy to a producer on behalf of a screenwriter just saying I'm you know I've been asked to submit the script because otherwise they're not going to even look at it but it's not if they if you don't know the person you're submitting it to or not it's just a way to get it to get it in it's not really unless you know the person firsthand it's really not a great way to do that but that's one way to get around not having an agent um, sending it to agents is very strange um, I've been on the other side where I've done a lot of underlying write book deals recently um, to producers, and then they go ahead and get a screenwriter based on the underlying story. So I would probably call the agent that did that deal, that they have the access to the producer and probably call them 
to read a script or I mean, years ago I, I think I did know somebody at Goldcrest and I'd send them occasionally certain scripts um, but if they don't have it's very hard as a lawyer unless you have really good relationships some, some there are some agents in New York but not that many of them that really are film agents that can get those things done it's usually done in the indie film world more I mean if you know indie film producers and you've worked with them you can um, you can send it to them you know um, I, I, I produced a, a very small short film years ago but I, it was it was written by a comedian as a play and he gave it to me to make a, a movie out of and it was one of those things where I was able to get the director very well you know very quickly or he helped me submit it to the director so we were able to get a cast and then I produced the whole thing and it was it was we did it for a very like a relatively low budget and it got into like I guess it was Showtime at that time we licensed it, it was a lot long many years ago um, but it's 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 really different than being an agent or I mean producing is a very different experience I've, I've discovered that a few times having produced and it's it's a lot different and and people make decisions in a very different way and it's a very intensive work experience than just you know giving somebody a script and helping people find money and stuff like that is a very different business and you know you can, if you if you can help somebody and connect them I'm happy to do that but it's not something you you know unless there are there are lawyers that also do that and charge for it but it becomes a conflict of interest if you're doing it actively all the time and being the producer's uh, lawyer at the same time Right. Barry, do you represent screenwriters? Or like yeah, so way? over the years I've been asked to shop a lot of different projects for TV, film, music, books, everything. And my knee-jerk reaction is no, I don't do it because I don't want to be, you know, disappoint the, the client, uh, prospective client. Um, and I just tell them it either happens naturally based on my relationship with the client over time of working with them on the contracts and that I have a right relationship that I know someone. I don't do cold, you know, uh, submissions uh, myself. I don't think they're that effective, and I don't have the time. I'm busy enough with the contract work, um, you know. So, you know, unless it's the right opportunity or I'm involved in a in a deeper way because of some passionate, you know, really close to what I'm interested in, then not necessarily. No. Um, so, David, let me ask you on, on a separate note. So, you've, you've worked in the independent film world. Your first feature film, Love Ludlow, uh, based on an adaptation of a stage play, which I believe you wrote. Yes. Then you developed it into an independent film, premiered at Sundance. I know it got a great review from Roger Ebert at the time. Um, just sold it to Stars, Warner Home Video, right? But then, some years later, you worked in the studio world. Bridget Tarbethia, Great Gilly Hopkins. Um, what did you find? more challenging in terms of getting the film made? Was it the independent or was it working with the studios? The basic rule of thumb is if the movie's 100 grand or 100 million, there are just as many headaches. It's just they're a lot more painful. <laughs> um, it really is, you know, making a movie, I think everyone agrees, is a very tough, tough business. And uh, the bigger the budget, the more people have opinions. And, you know, art is... A film is art by committee. Uh, it's really a matter of how big you want that committee to be. Um, and it can get very, very big. Um, I wrote and produced Bridge Terabithia. Um, it was a very successful film. And it only took me 20 years to get it made. And, it's, uh, and I had an inside track. I knew the gal that wrote it. It was my mother. 
Uh, but that also made it the most difficult thing because when I met with distributors who were going to finance it, uh, anyone who's familiar with the book knows some stuff happens in it which are not really wonderful. And so the distributors are like, uh, we got the money, we just have to change the ending. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, that's really not how the book goes. And uh, the book is actually loosely based on me as a child. And so there was a lot of personal connections as well. And I said, well, no, what happens in the book is how the movie's going to have to go. And I was approached by many studios, and they found me difficult <laughs> and went away. And in fact, Disney had approached me in 92, and then they approached me again in 2004. And they said, okay, you can still be attached, and I'll let you sort of fool around with everything. And, uh, and we'll let the bad thing happen. But it still wasn't fun. Um, you know, it's, uh, I knew the first thing that would happen as soon as the ink dried is they would fire me as the writer, which they did immediately. Uh, my first meeting in L.A. was at a huge, huge room with uh, 50 people around a table, and the guy at the end walks up and he goes, all right, first thing let's talk about is the new writer. <laughs> Everyone went quiet. Everyone's head went down. The guy looks at me all the way at the end. He goes, someone told Dave we, we have a new writer, right? <laughs> And everyone shook their head. He goes, you're going to love this guy, Dave. He's top, top dog. Everyone loves him. Everybody wants him. He's going to do the rewrite. They paid the guy 350 grand. They fired him before his ink had dried. And I said, I'll fix it. They went, no. They hired another guy, paid him 400 grand, fired him, brought me back on to fix it. There's a much longer story involved there. But it's talking about art by committee and a lot of chefs in the kitchen. Uh, but I kept myself attached as a producer to keep uh, control to a degree of the project. And I knew in the end I would lose a good amount of control, uh, but I fought tooth and nail as much as I could, and as a producer, they couldn't get rid of me. As a writer, they tried it several times. Um, so a lot of uh, filmmakers are starting out as writers. Um, the only reason I'm a writer-producer is because <laughs> I had to be to get my stuff done. We had joked about this. I, want, I don't want to be a writer-producer. Uh, I'd like to be a writer-director, as I said, is the Jesus Christ in show business um, because they're all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-controlling, whereas the writer is really Thaddeus, who was the 11th disciple that wasn't even invited to the Last Supper. He ate with the staff in the kitchen. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to try to keep control of your property, I always say remain a producer on your project because they will have to listen to you, uh, including the distributors. Uh, you will have a say. Do they take your say in the end? It really depends on how much uh, control you relinquish and how much control you keep. And that, in the end, is a decision up to you, because uh, there will become that time where you have to let go of the tether of your property in order to let it go to the next level. I had a film that came out two and a half years ago very low-budget film starring Kathy Bates, Octavia Spencer, uh, Julia Stiles, Glenn Close, and the studio decided to shelve it because it was during award season and they had a couple other movies uh, that they really wanted to work on. So they did a day-and-date release, released it in 20 theaters uh, throughout the U.S. that you wouldn't even know if it was up there because it was in you know the huge theaters, but it was like 
the 35th theater in the space, didn't even advertise it, but they followed their promise of a theatrical release. And, you know, it was devastating um, to have these huge stars who are basically being shelved. But again, when it comes to distribution, in the end, you very rarely have the full say. And you have to let her go, or let him go, or let it go, however you look at your project. Does anybody uh, have any questions for any of the speakers? Yes, in the back. In regards to music, um, I'm currently post-production of a horror film that I'm doing. Now, I have a couple local, like, up-and-coming bands. I got them to give me, you know, full releases on that. Do I need anything else, or...? Well, yeah, they basically so, said they wrote the song, it's theirs, they, you know, they're looking for exposure. Yeah. And they said that, you know, they'll say, hey, no problem, we give you the release, we're not going to... No copyright infringement, nothing against you. Right. So if it goes, we all make money together. Yeah, so, right, so it depends on the, what that release actually says there. Um, you know, if it's, it depends on the, what the writing is. You know, I don't know, did they specifically make you for the film, or is this work that, you, you know, you... Uh, well, we asked them to, uh, they were friends of the families. Okay. So we kind of asked, they said, hey, you know, well, so-and-so's in a band. I said, what kind of music do you have? So we were looking for a specific right. sound. They sent it to us. We liked it. They said, hey, can we use this in a thing? Okay. They said, sure. So we sent the release. They signed it said, yeah, no problem. I wrote it. You can have full release on it, full copyright, everything else. For, you yeah, know. so yeah, typically you, you wouldn't get copyright on it. You would get... Well, it's, 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 a, a syn it's called synchronization, synchronization license. Sync license. Yeah, right. So right. as long as... The, right. Right. As the long as that paperwork yeah. specifies that, they grant you the right to use their sound recording. And if they, you know, hopefully they also wrote the songs yep. too, right? right? So they 100% own both the song and the sound recording. Right. And they can grant you the right to synchronize it with the film. Now, you might want to use it for and to publicly perform it too, like let's say on broadcast. So that would be part of the sync license. Right. Um, I don't know if you'd want right. to distribute it. Um, on video, but that's a separate right that you would need as well I mean, for distri distribution. The, distribu the distributor probably want to see the paperwork and may have some modifications that they may want, but if you're, yeah, I mean, there's certain papers that, there's certain, I mean, there's certain documents that go with the, with film rights. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a book that I co-wrote with, uh, with co-edited co that, that has all these different, there's a lot of different books of, of entertainment forms that have all those type of, you could find a sync license. There's also one, what's the name of the guy, um, Kaminsky, he doesn't, I don't think he's alive anymore, but there's Kaminsky's, this business of music, they have sync licenses in there also. It's pretty, it's not that hard to find a sync license for a motion picture. You could get the language. Or get a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, they, we we do them for, for the movies. Usually, in your in your retainer with a lawyer, they'll say we'll do up to three sync licenses for three music, you know, three three songs and any. Yeah. And you're going to want film. perpetual rights. You know, yeah. you don't want to do a limited three-year license. Yeah. You want to not just have U.S. rights. You want right. worldwide rights, because distribution is typically worldwide these days. It's in every and all medium. So you got to be careful what the sync license says. You want it as broad as possible and you want to make sure that you can exploit it in as many ways as possible. I don't know, soundtrack album rights. You know, there's, right. so, yeah. But that, that should be the types of rights you would need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Questions? Yes.
Festival rights and then distribution rights, any other kind of rights or clearances that are necessary? Well, when you do a deal with SAG, for example, you, you get a contract, usually they set, set forth all the different amounts you'd have to pay them depending on what kind of distribution you get, depending on your budget. But usually what you do is you do that with every single person in your crew and your cast. Um, so you clear, but there are certain people that won't let you, you know, won't give you rights past a certain point without further negotiation. Yeah. But I just wanted to give the tip of when you guys are negotiating these licenses, uh, you know, whether it be SAG or music or anytime you're negotiating something, don't start off by telling them, let's just do a festival rights. Like you try to get the full thing yeah. first. Yeah. And then if they say it's $20,000 or something ridiculous that you can't afford, then you say, okay, how about for a festival right or something? But you always, you go go for the the gold first. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's been movies where everybody works for scale except one person. I mean, there's one movie years ago. It was a three million dollar budget, and one of the actors got a million dollars of a three million dollar budget, and everyone else knew it, you know. Um, and it got distributed, and, and so those are really difficult types of situations. But those are the type of things that happen sometimes. And I've been, I've, I had one movie which got a slam dance release, but it was the same thing. One, one actor got a lot more money than everyone else, and it, it made a very uncomfortable situation because you know there's one person getting paid all this money and everyone else is working for scale. And yet I've worked on movies where um, it was Madeline Kahn's last movie, that's how long ago it was, where everybody worked on a cast pool, and a, and a, a, a created a cast pool and a, a talent pool. And it was a very low budget movie, and then we just put everybody in that pool. Um, Edie Falco was in the film. I mean, it was a very so you can you can do that, and you, just that way you know that if there's any money that becomes profits, everybody gets put into a profit pool. I think everyone will, up here will agree: getting a sales agent, getting a distributor, is really really hard. But what's great about film festivals, I like to think of them as a very 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 long runway. Uh, you have a year pretty much so. Sometimes documentaries have almost a 14, 16 month period uh, to start going down that runway, taxiing, checking the wings, checking your flaps and, and then slowly heading down and hopefully by the end you have launched. And during that time as you're going down that runway there are people checking out your plane. There are distributors. There are sales agents. And as she mentioned, starting out with the script, to be able to reach out to these guys at the beginning then they may catch you halfway down that runway. They're like, oh yeah, I remember someone reached out to me about this. And look, the plane's looking pretty shiny right now. Let's see if it actually gets off the ground. And everyone would love to premiere at Tribeca or Cannes or the top ones. But there are other film festivals that distributors pay attention to, that salespeople take it to pay attention to. And you don't have to premiere at Sundance to find a distributor. You don't have to premiere at Venice to find a distributor. Um, it would be great. Uh, but the fact is, there are over 10,000 film festivals in the world. Most you've never heard of. Many you don't need to. But there are hundreds uh, that um, are throughout the world that catch a glimpse on that runway. And that's part of your research, is to figure out what's the best looking angle of your airplane. 
what is the audience wants to see that plane fly. Um, this is your time to shine. And the end, of course, is the distributor. It is the sales agent. That's what everyone wants. But know it's a journey. It's going to be a journey. For feature films, the average length is seven years. And that's when they're just doing the diagram of the airplane. And some of those planes never get to the end of the runway. So it is, it is a, a marathon. It's not, it's not a 20-foot foot race. So research is your best friend. Uh, naivete can be part of your best friend. But ignorance is a very dangerous, dangerous element in this business. And so you need to educate yourself. And I, I just wanted to add one more thing to that, because that's a really great point about thinking of the festivals as a runway, is the distribution marketplace today is really, it's the hardest that it's ever been, basically. Um, and so a lot of films aren't going to get a distributor. And that's just the reality. It doesn't have, it's not a failure. That's just reality. And so now there's a new crop of people coming up they call themselves impact producers or distribution consultants. Um, I know one company that's called Fourth Act, fourth act Films. I think it's a really clever name because it is the fourth act of your film. Um, and what they do is they work with you to create events around your movie, to book, if you want to do a self-release, to do your theatrical bookings, to get you um, the proper merchandising so that when you go into, let's say that you decide to go straight into VOD, that you're not just lost in the cemetery of alphabetical order, you know, that you get exposure. So there's a whole new, it's, it's almost like a sales agent and distributor light all rolled into one. Um, and they will help get your movie out there because this is just the new the new way that films are being seen. It, it is the new fourth act of the film business, I think. Uh, question up front here. Yeah. Um, I have a movie, and we have um, an investor that's going to bring one-third of the whole thing. It's just a 300 table, right? Um, and you were saying that we need to approach the traditional companies and sales agents from the get-go, as soon as we have the script. So I was actually thinking of approaching sales agents right now. And we're going to have some money coming into the project. So my question would be, what would be the best approach, like to try to talk to all of them at the same time, or go one by one when one says no, I will skip to the next, or just approach them all at the same time? I would approach them all at the same time, but make your approaches very individualized and very targeted. So, you know, if your movie is, let's say, if your movie is a genre movie, don't approach a sales agent that does, like, you know, hoity-toity dramas. So <laughs> you want to make sure that the people you're approaching to are people that would actually be a fit for the project. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you sort of answered the question for me a little bit. Uh, as, as time goes by, say you spend a year and you, your film gets into numerous film festivals, that would be nice. And then... Uh, distributors approach it. At that point, you may have choices to pick a certain distributor. And do you need a sales agent at that point? Is the sales agent still necessary? Oh, you guys are looking at me. You guys are the pros here. Um, you know, it, it is the Wild West in a lot of respects. Um, and you really have to 
not jump at the first offer, but listen to the first offer. Um, and if you have more than one offer, that's fantastic. Um, but it, it has changed dramatically, whereas Sundance five, ten years ago, there would be a buttload of salespeople who would want to talk to you. But now, most of these films going in have been repped for months, if not a year, even if not before they started shooting. Yeah, I would say if you're getting offers, um, or even if you just have one offer, what you need to consider is, you know, sometimes a sales agent can help negotiate between offers, right? Other times a sales agent is just going to get you a better price than what you could have done yourself. Um, but you have to, they're going to take 10%. So you kind of have to do the math. Given the offer that you've received is the 10% plus the legal fees associated with contracting the sales agent in the first place, will that be worth the upside? And you should check to see their connections because sometimes sales agents can get you into festivals that you never could get into. They can say, I repped three films at Toronto last year. They're always looking to see what I'm interested in. Let's see what I can do with this. One other question, if it's all right. I read a lot about self-distribution. Is that just forget about that, self-distribution? Well, again, we talked about how difficult it is. I did the Google tonight. Um, I'm old school. And uh, there are 7.7 .7 billion people on this planet. So as much as we talk about the trouble with distribution, the simple fact is there's an audience out there. So it's really how do you, as a filmmaker, find that audience? Now, traditionally, you'd say, well, that's the distributor's job. But a lot of distributors may not be as interested in that as they used to be. So when I talk about um, ignorance as your enemy, when you're talking to salespeople, when you're talking, you have to know who, who your audience is. 100%. You can't say, my mom loves this movie. <laughs> there has to be millions of moms that will love this movie. Um, you, you have to be... Well, yeah. No, but I mean, that, that's the thing. It's, um, you are the salesman. You got the airplane, but you're also the pilot. So... Do you want to say about self-distribution? Well, yeah, this, the self-distribution is kind of what I was talking about with these impact producers or distribution consultants is you're not doing it by yourself, right? You're hiring someone to help you do it, and they will, you know, that's the new, that's basically the new way. Um, and it's a real way. People make money doing it, so you just need to find the right person that can do it for your film. And in, in this situation, you can use family and friends. I mean... Uh, or, or find that niche. I have a documentary that's, that's finishing on post, but it has a military element to it, so the writer-producer was reaching out to VFA uh, places all over the U.S. and to help pay for the production, she was forewalling um, theaters packed with vets and their families, willing to pay and then give free advice on what they thought worked and what they didn't think worked. And um, it, it's amazing if you can find an audience that will want to come to a theater and give their opinion, give you 10 bucks and then give you their opinion, and uh, will make your film better. Uh, it, it, this is fairly new to me, actually. Um, I'm really surprised about more and more filmmakers doing this. They go to their hometown where their brother was the, the homecoming king and uh, the football, you know, the football star, 
and he reaches out to his friends on Facebook. Hey, let's go film my baby sister's or baby brother's theater to go see a show. And they pack a 700-seat theater with people willing to pay 10 bucks to help out their high school buddy. I mean, there are ways to, to start clawing back some of that money that you've made. Uh, even, and by the way, it's not festival. It's screening audiences. This is the most important thing. It's screening audiences, even if they're paying, because they're paying to help support your film and give you uh, uh, thoughts on how to make the film better. So, because you always want to hang on to that festival premiere. We have time for one minute left. One last question. Go ahead. Um, again, I'm in post-production of a horror film. In regards to film festivals, how would you, I mean, say if I get the horror film festival, either NOLA or uh, Houston, how do you compare that to going to the AFM in November? They're two very different things. The AFM, so, the American Film Market, which is in Santa Monica, in California, it's yeah. a market, not really a festival. Exactly. I mean, I don't think one precludes the other. I think you want to go to film festivals because that's how your film will be seen by an audience, and hopefully that's what's going to make you get interest from a distributor is to say, you know, I had three sold-out screenings at Houston or whatever, um, and then you go to AFM, ideally with a sales agent, to sell the movie that was previously at the film festival. Definitely both, yeah. All right, we gotta wrap it up. I wanna thank our speakers, Marcia Mayer, Diane Krauss, Barry Heyman, and David Patterson. Thank you, thank you all.